That last hymn, Who Is This?, is, is really great at getting the paradox that I think is, is really in a lot of ways at the heart of Jesus. I, just the idea even, I don't know if you've thought about Jesus as homeless, weary, sad. I don't know what you think about when you think of Jesus. Maybe you think of Him as just smiling all the time and sort of, you know, you know petting animals and little children and you know, blessing them as He kind of walked along the dusty path. But the Bible refers to Him as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He said about Himself that the Son of Man has nowhere to, to call home. Even the birds have nests and the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to call home. And as He died, and the soldiers cast lots for His only earthly possessions, it came down to a cloak. And I don't know what people think about Jesus, but it's even more astonishing to think about Jesus as one who is sad, as one who even weeps at times, when you remember who He is. He is God incarnate. God who has taken on human flesh to live among us. The One who made everything. The One who made everything for His glory and His joy is the One who takes on human flesh and walks around as a sad man of sorrows. So as we come tonight in our seventh week to consider the real Jesus, we're going to look at a passage, a famous passage, actually the shortest verse in the Bible is in John chapter 11. Two words, Jesus wept. There's a whole lot more to this story though than just those two words. And yet those are really important words. I think for a lot of people, they don't think of Jesus as one who weeps. I know my own story. When I was the senior in high school, the guy who was going to be my roommate, a guy named Jamie Griffin, was murdered by another friend of ours. Now, it took a while to actually figure out what happened. All I knew is he was supposed to come on this Young Life retreat with us, and he never showed up for the bus. That was concerning because he had asthma. He couldn't really be away from home. Really, this was the first trip that his parents were going to let him go away and not be home. And it went on and on and on without us really knowing what happened. Eventually found out maybe about a year later that he'd been stabbed 80 times by another friend of ours. It took 10 years before they found the body. It was a brutal, traumatic thing, but it was fascinating as I look back on it is, I, I didn't cry for five years. I didn't cry when it happened. I didn't cry for five years. And part of that was sort of my not knowing what to do with it. But part of it was a result of bad theology. I was with a group of Christians. I was a pretty new Christian myself. And I just thought, and it seemed reasonable at the time, that if God is in control of everything, then Christians shouldn't be sad. And I didn't know enough about the Bible to know that if I'd read very much, I would have seen that Jesus, the man of sorrows, was often sad. So I had sort of my own kind of Midwestern temperament where you try not to feel things, combined with bad theology. And I want us to look tonight and see Jesus in the face of death, weeping and quaking with rage, because we need to see that the real Jesus does both of those things in light of the sadness and the brokenness of this world. Let's look at 
chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. It's a, it's a rather long passage, but it's a famous story, and it's an amazing story. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick, referring to Lazarus. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, Let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. And after he had said this, he went on to tell them, his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Well, let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. 
Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this this amazing story. We thank you so much that this precious episode is recorded in Scripture that you have not only done this thing when you lived here among us, but you have made sure that it would be recorded so that we could continue to marvel at your glory and your grace and your heart revealed in this story. Help us now as we dig into this to both be comforted and made more bold by what we see here about who you are and what you've come to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's an interesting passage, isn't it? When you're reading it, maybe some of you, this is the first time you've heard it, maybe you've heard it before, but it's fascinating. Jesus hears about his friend who is sick. It's obvious that he has a special relationship with these people, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. The message sent to him is, the one who you love is sick. Okay? They don't even need his name. He's that special to Jesus. And yet Jesus delays two days. See that? You're like, what gives? It's strange. It's a strange detail. If it wasn't a significant detail, it wouldn't be in the story. Bible stories don't just throw, put in throwaway details really very often. If there's something like that in there, it's supposed to grab you and you're supposed to look at it and say, that's strange. Why does he do that? Now, it is important to note that when he hears about Lazarus being sick, he waits two days. And then when he goes back, Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. So it's not like if Jesus had went right away that Lazarus would have still been alive. When you factor in the time it took the messenger to get to Jesus, it's not, it's not that Jesus is waiting for him to die. He would have been dead anyway. But Jesus waits. Why? Well, he's waiting until it's clear that Lazarus is dead beyond hope. The reason I say that is the Jews at this time, 
believed that when someone died, the soul hovered over the body for three days. If you're in the tomb four days, you're dead beyond hope. Dead beyond hope. And that's the situation. And Jesus wants that situation. He knows Lazarus is going to be dead. But he knows that he's going to go back there and raise him from the dead. But in verse 4, you see that Jesus says that this has happened so that the Son of God could be glorified. In verse 5, you find that Jesus loves these people deeply. But when you go down into verse 15, Jesus says there that this is for the good of the disciples. And then finally, in verse 45, you find that some of the Jews put their faith in Jesus because of this. But others report him to the authorities, and the authorities call a meeting. Jesus delays so that this will be the kind of thing that will be talked about. And the disciples can't understand what he's doing, right? Because they're like, Jesus, are we really going back to Judea? Don't you remember what happened in Judea? They tried to stone you. And Jesus says this sort of like enigmatic, kind of paradoxical sort of statement. I'm not even sure what it means, but it's clear that he intends to go back there. He's not worried, but he knows what it means to go back there. And the disciples do too. They fully expect that if they go back to Judea, to this place, to this home, only two miles from Jerusalem, with lots of people who've come from Jerusalem to be with this grieving family, word will spread. And so Thomas, called Didymus, says, okay, I guess he's committed to go to his death, and I guess we're going to go with him. They don't understand what he's doing. Now, you've got to understand, we live next to, um, our neighbors are from the Middle East. You've maybe heard me say this before. We have Kurdish neighbors. And I remember one time, one of the sons who lives there came and knocked on our door and said, you know, one of my father's relatives has been killed in Iraq. It was actually a farming accident, unless you think it was something else. But he said, um, basically over the next week, there are 5,000 Kurdish people that live in South Nashville, and a representative from every family will be coming to visit. I thought... That's just unbelievable. That's what's going on here. This grieving family, people are going to come and pay their respects. And if Jesus goes back there and does this with the way the opposition to him is rising, it's not going to be a good scene. But he's not afraid of the Jews. Again, he has every right to be afraid. The disciples certainly are afraid. Jesus does not delay because they're afraid of the Jews. He delays so that this thing will be an even bigger deal than it is. But what I love about this part of the story is the way it shows us that so often Jesus' love, even his good things that he does, are so confusing at the moment. Imagine if you were one of the disciples. And you're like, okay, I know he loves Lazarus, but he didn't seem to like want to just sort of jump up and run back there when he heard he was sick. But now he wants to go there. And he knows full well that these people are going to want to kill him. He knows full well now there's going to be a crowd because we're into the mourning period. But he still wants to go there. What in the world? We can't figure Jesus out. I think so often we want him to do the immediate thing 
that we think will make things better. I mean, Mary and Martha are like that. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus is not interested in keeping Lazarus from dying. That's kind of a hard pill to swallow. Jesus, Jesus' good love for these people does not mean that he's going to keep Lazarus from dying. You see that? So often we want him to do that immediate thing. But instead, he's planned to do the better thing that's going to take time to unfold. That's the first lesson from this story. Well, he comes back to Bethany. He comes to their house. Actually, even before he gets to the house, Martha hears that he's on the way and she runs out to meet him. And I want us to see the way Martha and Mary both come to him. They both say the same thing, but Jesus answers one with words, even theology, and the other with tears. And both of them are necessary. Both Martha and Mary need to know that Jesus cares and they both need to know that the resurrection is coming. That God will one day put death to death. But Jesus is the wonderful counselor who knows what each of them needs and when they need it. It's difficult for us to be like Jesus in this regard. To give people both truth and tears. Because we tend to be more comfortable with one or the other. Some of you here really can sit and weep with those who weep. And it's a beautiful thing to behold. But sometimes you struggle to wonder if there are any answers that make sense of all the brokenness. And there are others that have good, rich words that need to be heard, but sometimes they're not heard very well because you can't weep with those who weep. Or sometimes you have the ability to give, but you're just trying to give the wrong thing at the right time or the right thing at the wrong time. And I love that Jesus is the wonderful counselor who knows what we need. He gives both, and we need both. The real Jesus doesn't just come and weep with us, and he doesn't just come and say, hey, get your act together. Don't you know I'm going to raise everybody from the dead? This is just temporary. It doesn't mean anything. Don't worry about it. He does neither of those things. He does neither of those things. So let's look at what he does do. He approaches the tomb with tears. Verse 33, when Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Man, I just got to tell you, having you know, been to more than a few funerals in my life, the one funeral that I thought got this was the funeral of my next-door neighbor. One of the sons had been killed and been shot and killed. And we went to this funeral. I don't know if you've ever attended a Muslim funeral. Fascinating. I learned all kinds of things that I never would have learned. They, you know, some of my neighbors took it upon themselves to explain all the different customs and the rituals. But I'm telling you, the point at which the body comes back to the mosque and the family looks at the body and weeps and wails. I just feel like sometimes we just try to pretend 
that death isn't that bad and isn't that sad. There's something about the way Jesus comes and he doesn't get mad at these people for weeping. No, he looks at Mary weeping. He looks at the people all around her weeping. And he says he's deeply moved. And then that verse in 35, verse 35, and he weeps. And I think you have to ask why. I mean, if he is God in the flesh, doesn't that mean that he should be above and beyond being sad? Do you think of God as somebody who's just happy all the time? I mean, that's how the Buddha is always pictured, isn't he? With his eyes closed, smiling, looking out on a broken world. But Jesus looks out on a broken world, and he weeps. And the passage says he's deeply moved in spirit. Now that's a really interesting word we're going to talk about in a minute, but it's more than just sadness. It's sadness and it's rage. He's not just sad, he's also angry. Why? Why is he moved so powerfully here? I think the answer is Jesus, even more than you, knows that this is not the way things are supposed to be. You know, I think one of the things that makes it so difficult for us when we are going through a tragedy, maybe the death of a loved one or other really difficult things, it's always, it's always sort of this thought kind of creeps into our hearts that God doesn't really know what this feels like. And let me tell you, God knows what this feels like. What do you think it was like for Jesus who knew better than you will ever know what this world was supposed to be like? What do you think it was like for him to walk around and see the brokenness and see the weeping? Yes, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead here. But Lazarus is going to die again. And everything about this situation is not the way it was supposed to be. I remember thinking right after 9-11, I know most of you guys were in kindergarten, but I remember just, you know, as everybody's talking about, you know, where is God in the midst of suffering? And I just think so often people ask those kind of questions and they forget about Jesus. Jesus, Jesus knows more than you do that people were not made to be crushed, pulverized by buildings. Right? Jesus knows even more than you do how screwed up things really are. And it breaks his heart and it makes him angry. Now again, he doesn't attack Mary. He's not mad at Mary. He doesn't yell at the people. What are you guys crying for? Don't you know that God's in control? He doesn't do any of that. And his people should never do that either. Jesus is not a stoic. God's people should never be Stoics. Lament is appropriate even for those who know and believe that God will make all things right one day. And Jesus, in his wailing here, dignifies lament. Do you know what lament is? You know, one of the reasons we sing all these hymns is because there's not a lot of lament in modern worship. A lot of people just aren't very comfortable. As a matter of fact, even in uh, some of the hymns that we sing um, that are 
sort of more honest statements about lament and brokenness dropped out of use in hymnals in the 1900s. And you actually have to go back to older hymnals to find some of the best hymns about lament. And that's not completely true, but it's definitely, you can, note, you can see a shift if you kind of track songs and when they get published and when they drop out of use. It's because lament is so important and it's so, it just seems so weird to us. Now, I gave you some stuff. I'm not going to read all this stuff. That's why I gave it to you on the outline. There's a guy named Nicholas Walterstorff. He was a professor at Calvin College and then later philosophy um, professor, chaired the philosophy department at Yale. But he's a Christian whose son was killed in a, in a climbing accident. And he wrote a powerful book called Lament for a Son. He also wrote this article about lament. And here's what he says. Lament is difficult for us to grab hold of. Lament isn't just saying, I'm sad and things are terrible. It's a cry directed to God. Like, God, it isn't supposed to be this way. And it's also a cry that's a cry of hope. And often in the Psalms, you'll see these laments where the psalmist will say, God, it's not supposed to be this way, yet will I trust you. That's lament. But it's hard for people to hold on to lament. There are some theologians, I don't know if you've ever heard of this book by Rabbi Kushner, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Do you know, do you've heard of this book? Here's what he says. Like He basically doesn't let lament have a place in modern faith. Why? Well, he says that God is not really sovereign. Like he says, you can't have a sovereign God and suffering. We know suffering's real, therefore God can't really be sovereign. And so God's doing the best He can. He weeps with us. But you need to cut Him a break. He's doing the best He can. Now, Rabbi Kushner thinks that that's helpful, but it kills lament, real lament because it can't cry out and hope for the day when all things will be made right. Even as God has promised, right? There is a day coming when there will be no more tears. So lament does not turn a blind eye to suffering now. And a lot of Christians, especially even in the Reformed tradition, are like, well, God's sovereign, so this must not really be bad. Because if He's sovereign, then everything's good. That's, that's just a load of bull. It's not biblical at all. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Yes, I believe in the sovereignty of God, but I also believe that God is one who weeps and rages in the person of Jesus at death. Well, Walter Storff, you know, kind of has some helpful things there. You might look at that if this is kind of a new idea to you. But I want to say this. Jesus weeps because the Christian God is the God with scars. So a famous poem, uh, you know, people quote it from time to time, maybe you've heard it. It was written by this guy, Edward Shalito, after World War I. It's called Jesus of the Scars. Listen to what he says in this poem. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Let me tell you something. I've been a pastor 20 years. And I find that so often, the why questions that get generated by suffering, really most of the time are actually who questions. You see some of the people there, verse 37, why couldn't he come here 
and keep Lazarus from dying. He loves him. We know he has power. He healed a blind man for crying out loud. Couldn't he have stopped Lazarus from dying? Do you see how that's a why question? Why didn't he do it? But it's really a who question. What kind of powerful being doesn't intervene and just fix things? And I don't have an easy answer for you. But I know this, that when you're thinking about the kinds of questions that suffering provokes, please don't think of them apart from Jesus. Because if you don't remember that Jesus is the God with scars, you will go into sort of murky depths that it's hard to get out of. So often we just try to think about and philosophize God's sovereign and He's good and He's all-powerful and there's evil and I don't know how it all fits together. And I say, I don't know how it fits all together either, but I know Jesus was a God with scars. And that doesn't end all the questions, but it puts them in a context where I can still take the next step forward. Because I know that God is acquainted with grief and rages at it. I mean, it's comforting to know that He weeps. But He does more than weep. And let's get into that. This word translated here in verse 33, verse 38, it's a very difficult word to translate. Not only is it a difficult word, it's a difficult word to put with Jesus. As a matter of fact, it's a, it is a word that actually is used in Mark 14.5. So it's a word used elsewhere in the Greek New Testament. And there, they don't struggle to translate it. Do you know how it's translated there? It's translated rebuked harshly. So when it says deeply moved, and then you see right around the same place that he's crying, weeping, you think, oh, he's just really, really, really upset. And he is really, really upset. But there's more going on here that you have to see if you would get a picture of the real Jesus and how he responds to the death of his friend. He's not just weeping, he's also raging. See, it's fine in Mark 14.5 for the Bible translators to say that the disciples rebuked this woman harshly. But it's a little weird to put that in Jesus. And so they say deeply moved in spirit. As a matter of fact, the only translation I know that has the courage to translate this properly is the message by Eugene Peterson. I actually like the message by Eugene Peterson. Sometimes it's, if you've been somebody who's been reading the Bible a long time, it can be really refreshing to see it different times. You know how he translates it? He translates John 11:38, Jesus quaking with rage. It's a word used for a war horse snorting and stamping his feet about to charge into battle. That's how this word gets used. That's the picture of Jesus. Jesus approaches the tomb with tears, but he approaches the tomb with rage, ready to do battle. Ready to do battle. Because Jesus knows as He stands there with all these people around that if He raises Lazarus from the dead, He's signing His own death warrant. He knows it. And He says, I don't care. Bring it on. Because Jesus is out to stop more than one funeral. Again, there's the immediate need that consumes the people's lives who are here at this moment. And Jesus weeps with them. But Jesus actually has an even bigger goal. He wants to put death itself to death. 
And to do that, he needs to raise Lazarus in front of all these people who are going to go tell the Pharisees, who are going to convene a meeting of the Sanhedrin, and it is this event, as the next verses after what I read show us, that caused them to plot to kill Jesus. The disciples were right. If he goes back, they're going to kill him. It's this event, it's raising Lazarus that causes his own death. But it doesn't matter, he's committed to the confrontation. And we need to see Jesus as one who doesn't just weep, but as one who rages against death and is not powerless, quaking in fear as he faces death. You know, C.S. Lewis captured this so well in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right, where Asland is explaining how it was that death didn't last for him. He was killed. And now he's not dead anymore. You remember what he says? He says, though the white witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know, that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. That's what's going on here. This is not just a simple little story about Jesus raising his friend and weeping. Though, gosh, it is so important that you see that Jesus weeps with those who weep. And even though Jesus is committed to ending death, we live in the in-between where death is still the great enemy. But Jesus rages at it. Rages at it. I put some other stuff down here from this guy, B.B. Warfield. You know, this was so... I told you how when my friend Jamie was killed, I didn't cry for five years. Okay, so I finally got to the point. I had some friends that were like, you know, it's weird that you don't cry. We're going to start praying that you would cry. And they were faithful friends, you know, who just got in my face and wouldn't let me go. But it didn't mean that, like, all of a sudden I could just feel things like I wanted to. And in a lot of ways, even when I got out of seminary, I still found it so difficult to feel things. So afraid that if I started crying, I wouldn't be able to stop even. And a friend of mine directed me to this article, and I put some quotes here, but if you're interested, you might find it helpful. It's called On the Emotional Life of Our Lord. By a guy named B.B. Warfield, who lived 100 years ago. But he basically did a study of the emotions of Jesus as they're revealed in the Gospels. And it's a profound thing to see, particularly this passage. You see, here's what he says. This is the amazing thing. He says that when we see Jesus here, we see him actually accomplishing the earning of our salvation. Listen to his words. He says, when we observe Jesus exhibiting his human emotions, we are gazing upon the very process of our salvation Every manifestation of the truth of our Lord's humanity is an exhibition of the reality of our redemption. In his sorrows, he was bearing our sorrows, and having passed through a human life like ours, he remains forever able to be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. Such a high priest, in the language of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, says that he became us, and we needed one who would become like us in every way. 
You need to know that the real Jesus weeps, but the real Jesus does not just weep with no power. The real Jesus says to death, bring it on. And he knew the deeper magic. Death could not hold him. And do you see this? Even this picture of Lazarus being resurrected gives you a hint as to what Jesus is really doing. It's what we talked about in Isaiah 65 for the call to worship. Jesus is not just about forgiving your sins so that you can get to heaven one day. Jesus is about making all things new. Resurrection. Nothing less than resurrection. New life. Recreation is what he's about. And he's willing to die for it. But death couldn't hold him. And death can't hold you. And death cannot hold this world. This world will be changed. Jesus died to ensure it. Where's your hope? We need a lot more hope. And we need a lot more tears. And strangely, they go together. If you don't weep, it's hard to hope. You don't want to mute both of them. We tend to try and sort of just sort of live even keeled. If you don't allow yourself to be touched, then you'll find it difficult to be angry at the things that should make you angry. And you'll find it difficult to set yourself to God's goal, which is to bring new life and healing where there's brokenness. Let's pray.